Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast of excellence for book six, chapter six of War and Peace. I am checking out a new microphone, testing out a new microphone tonight, um, just trying a different setup. So I hope it sounds good. Um, there is a lot of background noise though, because someone's having a shower not far away from me. So that's noisy. If, it, if you can hear a noise in the background, that's what that is. By the way, usually, <clears throat> someone has said to me recently that they can usually hear a noise in the background, which is like um, like a rubbing noise. And what it is, is for some reason, I don't, I don't notice that I do it, but whenever I'm concentrating and um, reading, I rub my thighs. <laughs> I just kind of rub my thighs with my hands. And I just do it automatically. I don't even notice I'm doing it. Um, so it's just me kind of rubbing my knees with the palms of my hands. Uh, if you're wondering. If, you, if you've heard that in the past and gone, oh, what is that noise? That's what it is. It's the good old thigh rub. Now, I would ask for feedback on how this microphone sounds, but it's probably not the best time to ask because there is a shower happening in the background and you can probably hear it. So it's probably not the best test case for that. But still, let me know how it sounds. All right, let's actually talk about what we're here to talk about. Book 6, Chapter 6. Tolstoy is often challenging first impressions and trying to get his characters to recognize the reality of situations. What do you think about Prince Andre really liking and respecting Speransky, but finding something off in his eyes and hands? Do you think that Prince Andre has correctly judged the character of Speransky? Will this friendship slash partnership be a good move for Andre or not? Considering Andre seems to not be able to think clearly, as he is so busy in St. Petersburg, how will he take to being a member of the Commission on Military Regulations? Speransky, interesting new character. Um, it's interest. I find him interesting because Andre is so sort of um, engaged by him, I guess. I was going to say drawn to him, but is that the right word? Um, Andre's interested in him, so that makes me interested in him. Ikar 100 said, I find Speransky very interesting and kind of sinister. I wonder what we'll find out about him. It will be even more interesting if, if it's from the lens of someone other than Andre, although it looks like there's already potential for him to figure out whatever there is to figure out. Samantha Cruz said, Tolstoy alluded several times that Speransky is purposely putting on niceness slash, slash charm as an act versus the niceness actually being his nature. Uh, Acoustic Eel says, I think he will be really into his new committee job, Andre that is, maybe too into it. He has already thought out all his thoughts on the matter when he was in the country, so maybe he won't need to be thinking clearly in the moment, could lead to burnout if he doesn't know when to quit. But I'm happy for him that he got a job relevant to him and his interests. All right, interesting. I feel like it's going to be interesting to watch Andre in the sort of coming, you know, whatever comes up next. It's a bit of a lull at the moment. France and Russia are friends again, apparently, and there's not much happening 
Um, but I feel like Andre is setting himself up to be a big player in whatever happens next for the Russian military. Let's read on. What are we up to here? Book 6, Chapter 7. Um, and it goes like this. Nearly two years before this, in 1808, Pierre, on returning to Pete... We're going back in time here. All right, that's weird. Nearly two years before this, in 1808, Pierre on returning to Petersburg after visiting his estates, had involuntarily found himself in a leading position among the Petersburg Freemasons. He arranged dining and funeral lodge meetings, enrolled new members, and busied himself uniting various lodges and acquiring authentic charters. He gave money for the erection of temples and supplemented, as far as he could, the collection of alms, in regard to which the majority of members were stingy and irregular. He supported, almost single-handed, a poorhouse the Order had founded in Petersburg. His life, meanwhile, continued as before, with the same infatuations and dissipations. He liked to dine and drink well, and though he considered it immoral and humiliating, could not resist the temptations of the bachelor circles in which he moved. Amid the turmoil of his activities and distractions, however, Pierre at the end of a year began to feel that the more firmly he tried to rest upon it, the more Masonic ground on which he stood gave way under him. At the same time he felt that the deeper the ground sank under him, the closer bound he involuntarily became to the order. When he had joined the Freemasons, he had experienced the feeling of one who confidently steps onto the smooth surface of a bog, When he put his foot down, it sank in. To make quite sure of the firmness of the ground, he put his other foot down and sank deeper still, became stuck in it and involuntarily waded knee-deep in the bog. Joseph Alexevich was not in Petersburg. He had, of late, stood aside from the affairs of the Petersburg lodges and lived almost entirely in Moscow. All the members of the lodges were men Pierre knew in ordinary life, and it was difficult for him to regard them merely as brothers in Freemasonry, and not as Prince B or Ivan, sorry, Ivan Vasilovich D, whom he knew in society mostly as weak and insignificant men. Under the Masonic aprons and insignia he saw the uniforms and decorations at which they aimed in ordinary life. Often, after collecting alms and reckoning up twenty to thirty roubles received, for the most part in promises from a dozen members of whom half were as well able to pay as himself, Pierre remembered the Masonic vow in which each brother promised to devote all his belongings to his neighbour, and doubts on which he tried not to dwell arose in his soul. He divided the brothers he knew into four categories. In the first he put those who did not take an active part in the affairs of the lodges, or in human affairs, but were exclusively occupied with the mystical science of the order, with questions of the threefold designation of God, the three primordial elements, sulphur, mercury, and salt, or the meaning of the square and all the various figures of the Temple of Solomon. Pierre respected this class of brothers to which the older ones chiefly belonged, including, Pierre thought, Joseph Alexevich himself, but he did not share their interests. His heart was not in the mystical aspect of Freemasonry. In the second category, Pierre reckoned himself and others like him, seeking and vacillating, who had not yet found in Freemasonry a straight and comprehensible path, but hoped to do so. In the third category, he included those brothers, the majority who saw nothing in Freemasonry but the external forms and ceremonies, and prized 
the strict performance of these forms without troubling about their purport or significance. Such were Willarski and even the Grand Master of the Principal Lodge. Finally, to the fourth category also a great many brothers belonged, particularly those who had lately joined. These, according to Pierre's observations, were men who had not had no belief in anything, nor desire for anything, but joined the Freemasons merely to associate with their wealthy young brothers, who were influential through their connections or rank, and of whom there were very many in the lodge. Pierre began to feel dissatisfied with what he was doing. Freemasonry, at any rate, as he saw it here, sometimes seemed to him based merely on externals. He did not think of doubting Freemasonry itself, but suspected that Russian masonry had taken a wrong path and deviated from its original principles. And so, toward the end of the year, he went abroad to be initiated into the higher secrets of the order. In the summer of 1809, Pierre returned to Petersburg. Our Freemasons knew from correspondence with those abroad that Bezikov had obtained the confidence of many highly placed persons, had been initiated into many mysteries, had been raised to a higher grade, and was bringing back with him much that might conduce to the advantage of the Masonic cause in Russia. The Petersburg Freemasons all came to see him, tried to ingratiate themselves with him, and it seemed to them all that he was preparing something for them and concealing it. A solemn meeting of the Lodge of the Second Degree was convened, and at which Pierre promised to communicate to the Petersburg brothers what he had to deliver to them from the highest leaders of their order. The meeting was a full one. After the usual ceremonies, Pierre rose and began his address. Dear brothers, he began, blushing and stammering, with a written speech in his hand, it is not sufficient to observe our mysteries in the seclusion of our Lodge. We must act. Act. We are drowsing, but we must act. Pierre raised his notebook and began to read, for the dissemination of pure truth and to secure the triumph of virtue. He read, we must cleanse men from the prejudice, diffuse principles in harmony with the spirit of the times, undertake the education of the young, unite ourselves in indissoluble bonds with the wisest men, boldly yet prudently overcome superstitions, infidelity and folly, and form of those devoted to us a body linked together by unity of purpose and possessed of authority and power. To attain this end we must secure a preponderance of virtue over vice, and must endeavour to secure that the honest man may, even in this world, receive a lasting reward for his virtue." But in these great endeavours we are gravely hampered by the political institutions of today. What is to be done in these circumstances? To favour revolutions, overthrow everything, repel force by force? No, we are very far from that. Every violent reform deserves censure, for it quite fails to remedy evil, while men remain what they are, and also because wisdom needs no violence. The whole plan of our order should be based on the idea of preparing men of firmness and virtue bound together by unity of conviction, aiming at the punishment of vice and folly, and patronising talent and virtue, raising worthy men from the dust and attaching them to our brotherhood. Only then will our order have the power, unobtrusively, to bind the hands of the protectors of disorder, and to control them without their being aware of it. In a word, we must found a form of government holding universal sway, which should be diffused over the whole world without destroying the bonds of citizenship, and beside which all other governments can continue in their customary course and do everything except what impedes the great aim of our order, which is to obtain for virtue the victory over vice. 
This aim was that of Christianity itself. It taught men to be wise and good and for their own benefit to follow the example and instruction of the best and wisest men. At that time, when everything was plunged into darkness, preaching alone was of course sufficient. The novelty of truth endowed her with special strength, but now we need much more powerful methods. It is now necessary that men governed by his senses should find in virtue a charm palpable to those senses. It is impossible to eradicate the passions, but we must strive to direct them to a noble aim, and it is therefore necessary that everyone should be able to satisfy his passions without the limits of virtue. Our order should provide means to that end. As soon as we have a certain number of worthy men in every state, each of them again training to others and all being closely united, everything will be possible for our order, which has already, in secret, accomplished much for the welfare of ma mankind. This speech not only made a strong impression but created excitement in the lodge. The majority of the brothers, seeing in it dangerous designs of Illuminism, the Illuminati sought to substitute Republican for monarchical institutions, says the footnote there. Um, sorry, the majority of the brothers, seeing in it dangerous designs of Illuminism, met it with a coldness that surprised Pierre. The Grand Master began answering him, and Pierre began developing his views with more and more warmth. It was long since there had been so stormy a meeting. Parties were formed, some accusing Pierre of Illuminism, others supporting him, at that meeting, he was struck for the first time by the endless variety of men's minds, which prevents a truth from ever presenting itself in identically to two persons. Even those members who seemed to be on his side understood him in their own way, with limitations and alterations he could not agree to, as what he always wanted most was to convey his thoughts to others just as he himself understood it. At the end of the meeting, the Grand Master, with irony and ill-will, reproved Bezikov for his vehemence and said it was not love of virtue alone, but love, also a love of strife that had moved him in the dispute. Pierre did not answer him and asked briefly whether his proposal would be accepted. He was told that it would not, and without waiting for the usual formalities, he left the lodge and went home. All right, there we go. Another chapter for you. Pierre making waves in the Freemasonry section of the world. Alright, have your say about that one over at the subreddit. Thanks for listening and I will see you tomorrow.